Okay, well, hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball, and we're coming to you from the Wallara Gallery at Redleaf in person. As you can see, I'd like to begin by paying my respects to the Gadigal and the Biragol people, the traditional custodians of the unceded land that we're on now. Um, today's guest, Michelle Cahill, was last on the show about five years ago, just after her short storybook Letters, Letter to Pessoa was published. Um, Michelle also had three collections of poetry published, won many awards, was the founding editor of the literary magazine Mascara, and co-editor of the anthology Contemporary Asian Australian Poets. And Michelle was awarded the 2020 Red Room Poetry Fellowship, which I can't wait to hear more about. Um, I've followed that very closely. And her latest book is her first novel, Daisy and Wolf, which was only recently launched. Um, Michelle, congratulations on the new book. Thanks so much, Maggie, and thanks for having me. It's really great to be here and to talk about my work. It's such a privilege, so thank you. Oh, it's, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners, the Gadigal people on whose land we are right now convening. Yeah, wonderful. So before we begin chatting, can I just ask you to begin by reading a little from the book? Sure, I'd love to. Mm -hmm. Garden Reach, Calcutta, 16th of March, 1924. Dear Peter, this is where I begin. This blank page draws me nearer to you, the day sweltering, my courage quickens, the curtains billowing and the punker swaying, the punker rattling as I sit at my writing bureau, it is a soothing sound. I have spent the day at home stagnating for the heat, though I walked by the foreshore before breakfast with Mrs Burgess. Charlie is curled fast asleep in a shaded patch of dirt under the lemon tree. News has arrived of another riot in the east. James has taken ten officers from his regiment to Roorkee for training. He expects to be away for weeks. As Bunny helped him and as the car left, I felt a throb of relief. Quite suddenly, the pressure in my chest eased. Lightness filled my lungs and I sighed deeply. I do not believe the children should, shall miss James if I am to judge by their response. Like me, they have grown accustomed to his absence. I used to fret in the evenings, but that was boredom, the consequence of too much leisure and being domiciled. I've been reading the novels you sent and must thank you, Peter. I adored Mr. Forster's romance, A Room with a View, particularly the moral challenges posed by Mr. Emerson, the dear Lucy Honeychurch, the way he counsels her to be free of her deepest fears and her muddled thoughts. Let yourself go is his theme, which is entirely the kind of bold extravagance I needed to read. I dare say that was your intention, your mission. And it is true that you are acquainted with the author for at least the first hundred pages. I could not put down crime and punishment. It affects me the way Raskolnikov finds it difficult to be loved by his mother. To fall in love is exclusive. It is to read the beloved as a sign in all things. You always hover in my mind, the thought of you poking around in the Bodleian, wanting to write a novel. Though you are master and I have little expertise, perhaps we share the same compulsion to narrate. Only your trust in me and our hopes override this fear of rejection. Speak to me. I cherish what we have and crave to learn more about the fleeting incidents you describe. The party in Westminster, the little girl you bumped into in Regent's Park, and Clarissa. Clarissa, 
carelessly basking in her brilliance as English ladies do. Here in Garden Reach, we have lived in their periphery, accustomed to their scowls, skirting the favour of mansarps, only to be ridiculed. But equally, your letter roused my pity and concern for the welfare of that unfortunate widow. I try to picture her, for I feel akin. We are like peasants among these English women with their cool conventions. Still, to think in Italian, a language of beauty, a woman from the continent, Lucrezia, I do love the texture of her name, having rolled it on my tongue indulgently. And Sally, with French blood and her ancestors going back to Marie Antoinette and to Ruby Ring, and talking back to Hugh Whitbread about women's rights at Burton. Pardon my curiosity about her too. Perhaps I mentioned that my auntie Rita lives in Birmingham with her husband and three boys. He is in textiles. How perfect it would be if destiny forever altered our lives, our fortunes woven as one. To be with you, to dream, even simply to hear of these marvellous companions. And although you hint at, however fleetingly, an air of disappointment about Clarissa, it is impossible for me to imagine a woman more absorbing. I hope that day approaches. I live in the shadows. If it is true that you cannot bear to think of me with another man, you should know that you are the only man to enter my dreams. I cannot seem to forget you. What is proper? I try to undo a desire that may ruin us, but the feeling burns with every felt word. So writing advances me from my private sentiments to small acts. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, and listening to you read, you know, there were so many themes from the book that I could feel coming out in that particular letter um, that I might have missed the first time. Um, I mean, as I was, you know, coming to terms with, I guess, the character of Daisy that you've created versus, I guess, the character of Daisy that Wolf created and, and the way in which those two bisect and separate. Um, you know, very interesting textures going on. Yeah, so that's, that's an early letter where she's quite deeply in love and mm. romantic and the story charts obviously her journey as well as being a, um, a physical geographical journey. It's a journey into love and um, the traps of love, I suppose. Mm. But um, yeah, I, I, I think, um, yeah, I just wanted to share that because I've, in some of the readings I've been reading um, from the perspective of Mina, the author, the writer, but I wanted to really obviously give Daisy that voice and um, yeah, to sort of how that voice emerges is interesting, how it emerges when it when she hasn't spoken before on um, this novel. Yeah. yeah, out of the shadows, you say. And it almost seems like the shadows, of course, the shadows where she exists in Mrs. Dalloway, um, you've brought her out of the shadows into her life. But you've also, um, you know, again, in that reading in particular, um, I love how you bring in the different texts um, from the canon. So there's a canon text, and of course, Mrs. Dalloway is a canon text. You know, these are giant texts um, that kind of form the backdrop of what we know of as, you know, the literary canon. Mm -hmm. and, and suddenly you have this character kind of coming face to face, saying, you know, it's just little me against big English women, or it's little me against this, the canon, and how she begins to engage with those, those works. And through this engagement, it kind of grows in a way that seems to mirror the whole structure of the novel, where you've got, you know, you've got um, Mina engaging with Virginia Woolf as well as with the text of Mrs. Dalloway. 
it's just a beautiful balance of, of different um, textures of, of fiction and life and you know and writing. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's interesting um, how really literature itself was a way of of creating a picture of Asia, but it was um, sort of you know that the Asian, the Orient was a place that was passive mm -hmm. and um, visual, largely visual. Yes. So that's the thing we, we see um, Daisy in Mrs. Dalloway, but we don't hear her voice, which is we don't hear her stream of consciousness through, kind of filtered through the voice that moves through the different characters in the, in the, the first part of, of Mrs. Dalloway and, and throughout the novel. We, that's really interesting that we, we only sort of see her that way in the shadows, as you say, mm. and um, dark, pretty, mm. um, you know, as if she were a flower. Mm. Yeah, and, and also she's described as in many ways uh, morally uh, um, wanton, mm. giving it away too easily. I think um, at one point, I think I just put in the novel, Mm. And that was like a, that. That was kind of like a a stereotype around Eurasian women mm. of them being sort of morally, mm. uh, yeah, morally kind of promiscuous, I guess. And um, yeah, that was a very common stereotype. So you know, when I see saw this in the way that Peter describes her, in Mrs. Dalloway, I realised. Yes, it's, she is definitely a brown woman that Wolf is alluding to. Um, but I think it's really interesting what you were talking about before about canonical privilege as well, because I think um, it is, it's not just to focus on, you know, literature as, you know, this, this classic canon of literary texts. It's not, there is a reason for looking and engaging with that because that is very much how um, Western culture has established itself through literature as mm -hmm. being superior. So it becomes like a political and a social sort of force, really, through these texts. Yes, I mean, she has an arc, of course, and she grows dramatically through the book in, in quite a wonderful way, really. Um, and, and I'll come back to Lucrezia as well. But, um, you know, it, it, in the beginning, this sense of, um, I'm, you know, teach me what I need to learn to, yes. you know, to be a full woman in this world, as opposed to, you know, somebody who has, a, you know, quite a magnificent tradition of, of literature already in her own culture. Mm -hmm. That this is not, you know, maybe these aren't the first books she's read, and certainly they're not the first books, um, you know, that are being, to have these books fed to her as if she needed to be taught. Mm, yeah, there's very much mm. that is the the classic sort of position of the colonised person is mm. to be taught, to be schooled. Mm. Um, and that's Peter's attraction to her, I guess, to a certain extent, that, you know, here's somebody I can mould. Mm, mm. I think she refers to it, you know, that's your mission, you've given me these books to teach me. Um, so, yeah, I, I it's some... I think education and the role of education in colonisation um, has, has been perhaps overlooked. Uh, there are some 
literary critics that I'm aware of. I mean, I'm not, I'm not coming to this book as a scholar by any means, but there are, I'm aware of some critics who have um, specifically focused on education within India and China as, as, as being ways of perpetuating colonisation. Mm. Yeah, and it remains so, I think, you know, I think um, education and distribution of, of books yeah. And yeah, so that's really interesting because I know you've spoken about um, writing Daisy and Wolf as being, I mean, it's a wonderful book in and of itself with a you know, great um, engaging story, but also you, you've talked about decolonization and um, the fact of giving Daisy this voice um, is one way in which to say we can engage with these, these characters these sideline characters, and, and, and I think, you know, you've done it in other books as well. You did it um, to a certain extent in um, Letters to Pessoa. I know you, um, you gave Lolita a voice. <laughs> um, different kind of marginalization, I guess, but still a power dynamic there. And, uh, and Melanie Isaac as well. Yeah, that's, I think Melanie, I, I, I did, I liked what I did with Melanie. Mm. Yeah, I think that was, um, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, and it was quite subversive, you know, it was like, it was, um, yeah, it was uh, the way it happened. I think it goes to show that there's a lot that can come about just by, you know, being subversive and stepping out of one's perceived role as yes. a brown woman, you know, and uh, it, that was also interesting in the way that um, I... Um, wrote to John say the novelist, and uh, that was interesting, the way that I, It was a kind of a challenge, you know. It was kind of like a bit of a game in some ways, but it's also... I think that there's a role for games in actually undermining certain kinds of structures of power. Mm. Yeah, if that makes sense. Oh, it does, yeah. Mm. And um, I, I, um, I listened for the second time to your book show interview in the car <laughs> on the way over, and, uh, and I, I really loved there's a moment when, um, when you say, I'm the equal of Virginia Woolf. And it doesn't sound like hubris, you know, what it sounds like almost is, is um, something parallel to what happens with Daisy, where you go from saying, oh, well, you know, she's a giant of English literature, she's the best, you know, we can't possibly um, get better, to going, no, no, I, I'm coming along, you know, and I can, I can engage with this book and I can criticize it and I can look at it and see it for what it is and, uh, and take what's good and, and, you know, and use the material and in effect transform and, and you know, reclaim a character from it. Mm, yeah, that was like the coming to that awareness mm. of, of a feeling as if I could, I was her equal was really um, empowering for me. It mm. was. Because I guess, you know, no matter how much I worked on my own novel and how confident I was of the language and the story and how much I was you know, kind of absorbed in it, um, you still have this feeling that there are certain giants and, and, and that's the way that the canon pushes them up and um, also the literary criticism or, or the, the whole um, establishment of literary criticism pushes up particular authors and makes them and she's certainly you know right up there mm. it's interesting though I remember when I was at university my first encounter with Wolf reading um, A Room of One's Own I was a bit lost actually and um, I was doing a class on feminism at 
went to university and oh, it was a class of all white girls and <laughs> all white women and, and, and one of them was saying, was just raving about how amazing it was and I thought, oh, it must be, it must be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, I think we take it as given. I mean, I, you know, I was, I didn't finish it, but I was partly doing my doctorate on, uh, on Wolf Gates and Joyce, ridiculous choices but there you go um, and you know you couldn't you don't get more uh, canonical if you like and just the fact that she's the only you know one of the few women who you see feature there um, doesn't maybe doesn't mean we have to blindly accept any of this as given you know that engaging with it and and interrogating it is a you know it's a creative thing to do and you know you can get wonderful results out of it yes I um, I mean I, I also think but, you know, she was, in many ways, we've got common commonalities, mm -hmm. like in the sense that she was also working on the poetic novel mm -hmm. and um, very interested in poetry and that um, she'd written a lot of essays throughout her life. So the essay genre she'd written in was... You know, she was she was an established literary critic, and she continued that throughout mm -hmm. her life. And um, the other thing too about Wolf, which is interesting, is that she was the critics weren't always kind to her as well. So she was having a difficult time in many ways. And um, I mean, she gave as good as she got. <laughs> yeah, she did. She said she did. Yeah, she didn't. She wasn't a huge fan of um, Ulysses. I don't believe. Um, so um, I think, yeah, it was it was it, it was an interesting encounter to sort of and a rich encounter, obviously. And I'm a, mm. very much an admirer of of the language and also the syntax. There's something about all syntax mm. that really catches you and um, uh, is very original and unique, one of a kind. And I feel like you've picked that up in some ways as well. I felt as I was reading it that there, um, I mean, it's you know, wholly your own work, obviously, and, and it's very unique and distinctive, but there is a kind of cadence or a, a, just a kind of, I don't know how you could call it, maybe uh, just a, a linguistic homage to Wolf, even as you're reckoning with her, you know, her, her faults. Mm. There is a kind of sense of that, you know, interiority and the mapping of one character on another that she does so well. Yeah, I love how she uses um, clauses to, to kind of capture um, uh, asides, little asides and, you know, little interior monologues and so forth. And, um, mm. and, and that becomes a way of expressing emotions which can be quite um, complex and, and sometimes quite... Um, uh, Intense. She uses syntax to express intensity, emotional intensity, and um, yeah. Uh, and she sometimes, I, I, I think, I'm just, I can't remember the exact sentence that it is, but in To the Lighthouse, uh, when she describes um, about the death of the, the, the wife, you know, the way that that's described, it's sort of like all in one sentence and it's just so shocking, but it's a long sentence with this complicated syntax. Mm. And um, yeah, 
it's just an it's a po- almost a poetic rhythm, as you say, the poetic novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So Lucrezia was a character that, you know, she, <clears throat> in Mrs. Dalloway, she's kind of pathetic. You know, there's always the, oh, Septimus, you know, there's this, this sense of her um, being a victim. And it's always poor Lucrezia, you know, poor Lucrezia. She also, in many ways, is an outsider in that book. You know, she's, um, she's shadowed, not to the extent that Daisy is, because she does have a voice. But she's turned into, I guess, a kind of um, pathetic widow at some point, you know, when she becomes. Um, and, uh, and you reclaim her as well. And, and I guess maybe her, even her Italian is, is seen as exotic in, in Mrs. Dalloway. Yes, maybe so. I, I mean, I, I think that um, also the characters are not necessarily the same as what, you know, they're, they're my characters, they're not Wolf's characters. Yes. And that was like, they don't necessarily have to be um, the same as what happens in Mrs. Dalloway. Because mm. um, I think that characters can be multiples as well. I think there can be, um, you know, more than one daisy, more than one. Lucrezia. Yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. And, and of course there's Mina. Mm. Who, and, and so I really love what you've done from a time point of view. Um, you've got Daisy and, and her letters and her time period. And you've got Mina, who's you know, much later, so it's 1924. And, and it's 2017, 2017, yeah. And, and they're almost paralleling each other. Um, they're walking kind of the same spaces. So you almost feel like you've got a multi-time um, dimension going on. Mm, yeah, they are. They, they, they are. I don't know. Um, I'm not sure how that happened, really. But um, definitely, the the structure of interleaving the the, the chapters meant that I had to kind of um, I had to have resonances to, so that the book, these chapters, became part of a coherent whole novel. Rather than jarring, so I mean, already the reader is shifting from different time periods and different characters, so there needed to be resonances to kind of segue. Was that. was it difficult to get that structure right? Did you did you try different things, or did that immediately come to you as a, a way of you know this letter and then the kind of following on from what the, we almost get an insight into the writing by you know. Um, going from Mina's struggles to write something to then what's, what is written as Daisy becomes, you know, a character. Mm. Yes, it, it, it was a different novel to start out with, actually. So it was um, all of Daisy's story and all of Mina's story. Mm. And um, I was advised to, to kind of have this interleaving um, structure and that was with, I was advised by more than one reader, so I took that on board as being a good way to go forward. And um, it was a bit daunting because I was fairly sure that that, what about my structure, my first structure, I really wanted to prioritise Daisy's voice and that's why I wanted her story first. And then I wanted Mina's story to sort of follow that. And I wanted Mina's story to be a reflection in some ways, give the reader an opportunity to sort of think about what was the difference between the real story of Daisy and the fictional story of Daisy and mm-hmm. to blur those, those sort of um, 
things and given that there are some actual real characters that come into Daisy, the fictional character's story, yes. it sort of then would, was blurring like that, the, um, the, the alignment of history and fiction. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wanted to do, create some, some um, tension between those two distinct, you know, apparently distinct disciplines and, and show that they weren't actually that separate. Mm-hmm. And that really what makes the difference between histories and fiction is who's telling the story. Mm-hmm. So that's why I wanted to have Daisy's voice first, then telling the whole story, and then the whole story kind of repeated through Mina's ex- ex- chapters. However, it wasn't to be, and um, I think it works really well. Um, uh, obviously, yeah, like because I had to restructure it, there were lots of changes to make, and um, at first I didn't actually know how to go about it, to be honest, but um, I think that's the challenge of writing fiction as well, that um, you sit with a piece of, of writing and it's, it's got inherent problems and you work away and you battle, kind of battle with it. And, um, yeah, the architecture is, is, I guess, you have to architecture a story or a poem, but it's, it's so much shorter <laughs> that it, it doesn't become an extended project. Is this the novel that you told me when we were talking about uh, Letter, to, Letter to Pessoa that you were working on? Because I, I think, think at the end you said yes. Yes, yes, yes it was. It, yeah. I, I mean, I had, I had a pretty good idea of where it was going, so that was good, but of, there was definitely things about the, about the novel which just kind of took on its own energy through the writing process to find where it was its own direction as a result of the writing process. So I very much like that way of writing, whereby the process actually shows the direction that the text takes. Mm. Um, and I step back quite a bit, which I think is is good a good thing. I enjoy doing that. I enjoy um, that part of writing very much. Yeah, so yeah, and I, I trust that part of writing more when when that stepping away of the author feels um, really um, fluid and it's there's a certainty about it. And when it's happening, um, you know, and you're not forcing it either. I really like writing the most when there's not the sense of it being forced. Yeah. Yes, that makes sense. <laughs> and I guess there's a point, isn't there? So it's it's struggle, 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 and then suddenly you realise, ah, oh, was there a, a eureka moment, or was it? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I, I I just remember that there were many many substructural edits and they, they were exhausting. It was quite a complex novel to write actually. Um, and um, after, after them I'd be really exhausted and think, well now I've done it. <laughs> and only to sort of find that, that there were still things to sort of to be working on. Yeah. There was a lot of times of feeling quite tired and exhausted. Yeah. yeah, I guess quite a different process to to any other types of writing that you've you've been doing. Um, but it, yeah, it's, definitely. Um, I suppose every novel's different. Uh, you know, it's uh, this is my first novel, so it's still a learning process for me. Um, although I did write a novel once years ago, which actually um, 
didn't get published. Mm. So I've had the experience of writing a novel. And I think that that's not a bad thing in, in, in actual fact. I think, you know, having had that experience, it felt as if this time I was so much more certain of the direction mm. that I was taking. And I'm hoping that, you know, that'll happen if I decide to write another novel. Yeah. Mm. And do you think you will? <laughs> it's I'd like to. I would really like to. I mean, I really enjoy you know, what, what fiction can do, and yes, just, Yeah, and so. I mean, you've won many awards for, for your work, and I didn't list all of them in, in your intro, but, um, you know, something about Daisy and Wolf has really struck a chord, I think, and, um, you know, just the, um, it's not so much, you know, you've had good reviews and everything, but this seems to have really caught on, it just seems to be everywhere, which is wonderful. Or maybe it's just because I read it and now I'm seeing it everywhere. But do you think it's this, has it hit a zeitgeist or something? You know, has it, do you think there's something about um, what you've done here in conjunction with, um, with Wolf's work that is really needed right now? Mm, yes, maybe. Um, maybe. I think partly it's also to do with the fact that this is really my story to tell mm. and it's the first text that I've written. I mean, I think I was kind of hinting at that or got moving towards that in Vishwarupa, which was looking at, um, you know, poems that looked at Indian Hindu gods from the perspective of someone who was kind of removed from their culture, removed from their language and so forth. You know. um, but um, nonetheless, uh, Vishwarupa is, is, an, is a Hindu kind of concept and I'm not a Hindu, so here I found an Anglo-Indian character. That's what I am, I'm Anglo-Indian. So I think it's the fact that this, through Daisy, I'm able to speak as um, more openly about my my who I am in a way, you know, through Daisy mm. I, I, and, and my, my culture and my people. That's what I wanted. I'm kind of showing who is Daisy, who are her community, who is her family. I'm taking um, the reader into her home. I'm take, introducing the reader to her parents and to her children, which Virginia Woolf doesn't do. Mm. Um, and um, she... We see her cousins, we get an idea of what marriage is like, what, um, what constricts them as women and, and what freedoms they have and so forth, you know, and, um, and language, all those elements of language and, and education, how that makes them different from, more, uh, from other Indians in that they're living in the same country as. So um, I think this character is speaking in a way people can see that this is my character to, and my story to tell and I think also I've been working for a while uh, looking at how you tell the minority narrative and in Letter to Persona in some ways I was doing that. Mm. I think um, I remember actually talking to you about that and it was a really wonderful interview mm. that we had a really great conversation. I think we talked at one point about using Persona as a sort of like using um, literary um, writers is kind of like a, it's like a tandem journey mm. that you take so it's your story but it's also like an address to to someone who's 
within the canon and who's known and, and that is a, a way of like lifting up the minority narrative yes. and putting it into a different position which is necessary. Um, you know, some critics at that point had said, you know, that there was ambition <laughs> and, um, and so forth. Um, and, uh, yeah, probably there is a bit of um, just, uh, you know, being willing to try and experiment and willing, you know, to step outside of perceived limits. Mm. Um, however, I think you have to think that how else can you tell the minority narrative? And really, it's you're really looking at something like that, or, or you're looking at the metafiction. Um, it's very hard to tell the minority narrative. Mm. And so I've been working for a long time, and I think that maybe readers who have are familiar with my work might recognise that this is finally, you know, a much more fuller accomplishment of what I've been trying to do for a long time, in a way. Yeah, it does feel a bit like a, a culmination. A culmination, that's the word yeah. I was thinking of. Mm, yeah, it's wonderful. So um, we're nearly out of time, but uh, we've been talking with Michelle Carhoff and her wonderful book, Daisy and Wolf, which was published um, just recently by Hatchet, and uh, I highly recommend it. So um, this is Compulsive Reader Talks, and bye for now. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Maggie.